All right, if you'll take your Bible and open up to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 6 and uh, trying as best as we can to uh, listen to Jesus together today. Uh, This is a sermon that Jesus preached, Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 49. It's similar to the Sermon on the Mount, but it's probably actually a different sermon. Sometimes it's called the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on a Level Place. And we're only going to look at the beginning, verses 20 through 26 right now. But as we do, I really want us to hear from Jesus. It can actually be difficult sometimes to hear what Jesus is saying because uh, there's just so much noise. Uh, The picture I have is of trying to talk to someone with headphones on, you know, like those noise-canceling headphones. And he's got his music on really loud. And so uh, the person can be talking and uh, giving really good instructions, but it can be very hard for them to hear. That's uh, kind of how it can be with with Jesus. If you want an illustration, you can look at the disciples in the Gospels, and maybe you remember how, and we'll see this more as we work our way through the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus is going to be telling them repeatedly about him being rejected and suffering and dying on the cross, and this is something that he makes very clear And he says a lot, yet every time he tells the disciples that, they almost immediately start talking about another subject, uh, usually about which one of them is the greatest. But it's like it goes right over their heads, uh, which seems strange to us reading it. We're like, what is wrong with those disciples? Because it's so clear, and yet it wasn't clear to them. And part of The reason why it wasn't clear to them was because they already had these ideas in their minds, these super strong ideas from the culture about how life was supposed to work. And so it was like Jesus was talking, but they had headphones on. And it can be like that with us. It really can be like that with us as well, because we have these assumptions about life and about how life is supposed to work just like they did, that we sometimes don't even recognize. And so sometimes when Jesus is talking, instead of hearing him, we just stick with our assumptions. And so we need to pray and think and think and pray if we're going to hear Jesus. And today I want us to pray and think and think and pray about our value system, the value system that we've picked. And I actually don't know if that's the right word or best way of putting it, but I'm talking about the grid that you have in your mind as you think about what you want and what you don't want, what is good for you and what is bad for you, because obviously in life there are all kinds of different states or circumstances, and you make judgments about them as being either good or bad, as being either honorable or shameful a place or a situation where you really can flourish or one in which you will not flourish. So an illustration, and there probably are almost too many of them, but I'll go with a really obvious one. Say we drive through a place together that is really uh, financially poor, and we see people living in little uh, shacks that they put together, no running water, no electricity. If we are from wealthier places, I can guess how we're going to feel because I've actually seen it over and over and over, we are going to feel really badly because we think that's not a good place to be. 
But on the other hand, say we drive through another place where there are these really big houses, amazing lawns, whatever. You know what I'm talking about. We don't generally come away with the same feeling. It might even be instead more like envy that we feel. And that illustration is almost too easy, but we've got a grid that we use to evaluate things. And I want to talk about that grid, that value system that you use to make those kinds of judgments. Because for one thing, you have one. You absolutely have one. You are not just going through life without any opinions about what is good or bad for you. You're not a piece of furniture. You're a person. You think. You are dividing what you think is honorable from what you think is dishonorable. What is good for you from what is bad for you. What is impressive to you and what is not impressive. What is attractive, what is unattractive. What is healthy for you and what is not healthy for you. You're doing that all the time. That's there. And you don't always even know how deep it goes. At least I didn't always know how deep it went in me until I had children, actually. And then those opinions come out. I, I want this for them, or I don't want this for them. Uh, they talk about a job, and your heart is like, no, you can't do that job. Why? Because you have a set of assumptions about what is good and what is not good, and what will cause them to flourish, or what will cause them not to flourish. We all have that, this value system, this set of assumptions, and we don't always even evaluate it. That's the thing, whether it's right or not. Because most of the time, it feels intuitive, obvious. I guess that's why we say it's assumptions. We assume this is just the way it is. But it's not just the way it is, actually. And you didn't come up with this little value system all by yourself. You were trained in a way of thinking about the world, whether you knew it or not. And a lot of that training you didn't even know was happening. You were being taught how to make those judgments, even if you didn't know you were being taught. I think at some point you should just take some time and, and start noticing how often you are being told how to think about this world in settings where they're not saying that. They're not telling you that they're telling you how to think about this world, but they are. In other words, that's, that's different than what's happening right now, because right now we're looking at the Bible, and obviously this is about how we're supposed to think about the world. You know that. This is deliberate. It's up front. This is what we're doing. But there are actually a lot of other times where you're being told how to think, and it's not so obvious. It's not so straightforward. They don't tell you that they're telling you how to think, but they are. And so like when you read stories, when you watch television shows, definitely when you watch commercials, t-shirts, I mean so often you read people's t-shirts and they're telling you how to think. T-shirts can be so bossy. Billboards, for sure. Uh, the way you watch other people interact with other people as you're growing up, you watch who is honored and who is dishonored. Your parents, for sure, did a lot of work as well trying to teach you this is the good life. And it gets in you, all that training. And sometimes it's so deep in you that you just think this is the way it is. This is how the world works. Everybody thinks this. 
But actually, not everybody does think this. It's not necessarily just the way it is everywhere. So for example, if, if we go to Kenya, and we're out in a tribe in Kenya, uh, with a tribe in Kenya, the Samburu maybe, and you sit down with them and you're talking about your life and you tell them you graduated from Harvard, how's that gonna impact them? Not much. So you tell them about college and the prestige of Harvard, and you know it's still not gonna be something that they say they feel, okay, that's really impressive. That's really desirable for a good life. No. A, a funny illustration from my life. We were just at this conference. And I don't actually think this way, mostly because I haven't been trained by my culture to think this way, honestly. But we were at this conference, and I was with a group of, of pastors, and they lined us up by age. That was a different experience, especially now because I'm getting older, so I'm moving toward the front of the line. And, and you don't normally know how old everyone is. And I think of myself as looking so young, so <laughs> that's maybe why you don't think about it as much. I know that might not be true. I'm just saying my perception. Um, but once I did know, uh, it was tempting for me to start looking at people differently. And I don't even come from that kind of culture <laughs> where that stuff is honored. But we've got grids. We divide grids up. And like the person organizing that group of pastors, our culture, our parents give us a grid to divide people up, situations up, and that grid shapes us. I can uh, give a sadder story, and I don't know if it's fully appropriate for me to give it, but I think it's such a good illustration. When we were in South Africa, we lived among a people of many different colors, and there were some people who had been told their whole life that they were inferior because of their skin color. The other skin color was more valuable. And so one of my friends told me that many of the people he knew would have questions, like real questions about God's attitude toward them on the basis of their skin color. Even sometimes in their own minds, not just other people's, their own minds. They had been told so many different ways that one thing was good, one thing was not as good. It became a set of assumptions, a grid, they used to look at life that obviously was not true. It was not accurate, but they assumed. And it has influence. Your value system influences you. We, we saw that there for sure. It's easier to see in others, of course. But that particular value system would influence sometimes who people listened to, who people respected, how they viewed their own life their attitudes, and it does us as well. You think this is what makes a good life, and this is what makes a bad life. This is what's honorable. This is what's dishonorable. This is what's going to cause me to flourish. This is what won't, and it influences how you feel, what choices you make, what worries you, what you get upset about, what you get happy about, what you pursue in life, the sacrifices you're willing to make, who you're impressed by, who you listen to. It has power. It has so much power. You can see maybe how important this is. If not, I can give you more illustrations. We can talk, but people choose jobs on the basis of this. People move to other countries on the basis of this. People get depressed on the basis of this. People relate to others a certain way on the basis of this. 
It's important. You can see maybe how important, I hope. But the question is, what if your system, your set of assumptions, your grid was wrong? This is where your world can get turned upside down a little. It's like finding out the person you thought was your father is not your father. It's that core. What if those ideas that you had been taught that feel so intuitive, you never even question them, that drive your life in so many ways, what if they actually weren't fully true? What if what you just assumed was the good life, the way to flourish, and what you just assumed was the bad life, who you feel pity for or feel sorry for, what if you were wrong about all that? You have to think about that. I want you to think about that. Because I think maybe, potentially, for a lot of Christians, it is. They become Christians, they, they read their Bibles, they make some moves forward, but they get stuck. And then they really have a hard time hearing what Jesus is saying because it's like they have these big old headphones on. They have this whole way of looking at the world that they've been trained in, and they don't even realize how different it is than Jesus's. So you go overseas, and you know, you uh, work in a, a different culture, and you can see this so easily. You're like, you're a Christian on the outside, you, you've changed some of your habits, you wear different clothes, you say different words, you do different things on Sunday, but on the inside, your actual everyday way of looking at the world hasn't changed that much, at least not as much as you think it has. That can be so easy to see when you go other places, but obviously that's not just true other places, and that's, I guess, what's scary, and it's why you have to think, is your value system the grid that you use to determine what is really beneficial in life and what is really important and good in this life right now and what is really desirable in this life right now, the same as Jesus's? That's the question. As we look at this sermon Jesus preaches, and especially just the introduction, verses 20 through 26, that I want you to be asking. It's a little uncomfortable to be asking, but it's important because Jesus is giving a value system to us. And if you'd like to write down an outline, you can write that down as number one. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is giving a value system, a way of looking at the world to us as he's talking about who is blessed and who isn't. Luke writes, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. And leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. 
Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Which is shocking. (laughs) And the first thing we have to figure out if we're going to understand it is what Jesus means by the word blessed and the word woe. And this is going to be really important for understanding the rest of what we're about to say and definitely for understanding the Beatitudes. That's what this section is called, the, the Beatitudes, because Jesus uses the word blessed here differently than we sometimes do. And English makes this hard, actually, because in English, when you use the word blessed, you could be referring to a couple different things. So obviously, when we say blessed, we're uh, thinking about someone who has it good. But sometimes, and maybe even usually, we're thinking about someone who has it good as a result of what someone else has done for them. So I say I'm so blessed, I usually mean I've been given something good. And of course, if we're Christians and we're thinking biblically, we're thinking about being given something good by God. We're blessed. God is showing us favor, which is a little different than the word happy. And what we mean by it, that, that's what's confusing, because we sometimes use the word blessed just to mean happy as well. We've got these two different ideas we use the word blessed for, and they are a little different. You need to understand that. Being a recipient of divine favor is different than just talking about someone who is happy. Because when we talk about someone who is happy, we're more just describing their state, basically, their condition. We're saying, you know what, you're in a situation that is good, that is fortunate, the way you're living, how things are for you right now, is something that is worthwhile, that is pleasant. Most languages have different words, actually, for the idea of divine favor being given to someone and just describing someone who has it good. Even actually the Old Testament. So if we go back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament had two different Hebrew words for the word blessed. And the one word is a pronouncement of divine blessing. So maybe picture a priest in your mind representing God and and looking at someone and blessing them. So it's like they're speaking for God and they're doing something. They're like a, a channel. God is actively doing good to that person through that blessing. So you can imagine someone maybe standing there and it's like blessing is coming down on them from above which is usually maybe how we think of the word blessed here in Luke or even in Matthew. Is that how you think of it? Like, blessed are you who are poor or poor in spirit. Almost like Jesus is looking at those who are poor or poor in spirit and pronouncing blessing on them. God will or God is blessing you because you're poor in spirit or poor even. And if that's how you hear this word blessed, then you read this more like a command, really. Uh, Be poor in spirit, or be poor so God can bless you. Which is why this passage is sometimes confusing. And thinking about it like that is a problem, because that's not actually exactly what is going on. This is not Jesus saying, and this is important, if you do this, you will be blessed by God. Instead, this is Jesus saying, these are the kinds of people who are already blessed. And these are the kinds of people who are not. These are the kinds of people who are living the good life. And these are people who are not. 
And we know that because there's another Old Testament word for blessing, which is the word behind the one Jesus is using. And if you're interested, there's a great book on this by someone named Jonathan Pennington who proves it, that this word is not blessed as in Jesus initiating divine favor, but blessed as in Jesus saying, wow, you really have it good. So in other words, it's not like blessing is coming down from above on someone's head here. It's more like coming from the side. It's like I'm standing beside you and I'm making a value judgment about your life. I look at you and I say, you are really privileged. The, the way you're living your life right now is the way to be in this world if you want to flourish right now. Which is why the opposite word is not cursed here in Luke. It's not blessed are the poor, cursed are the rich. Jesus is not pronouncing a curse on the rich and on those who are full and on those who laugh now. Instead, he says, woe. And woe is something you say when you're almost pitying someone else. As one author explains, a, a woe is a way of being in the world that does not result in flourishing, but loss, grief, and destruction. It's almost like an exclamation, a negative exclamation. Woe which messes with us when you think about it like that. It should make us look at our assumptions again, our value system. Because here, Jesus is coming down from the mountain after meeting with God, after being rejected by the religious leaders, and after choosing 12 men who would serve as his authorized representatives, which is Luke's way of saying, basically, that he's coming down from the mountain as the one who is going to fulfill all the promises of the Old Testament. And he's proving it as this huge crowd of people is coming to him from everywhere and he's healing people and he's casting out demons and he's looking at his disciples now, Jesus. He's looking at these people who are saying they want to follow him and he's explaining a new value system, a new way of looking at the world and thinking about those who have it good and those who don't. And what he says is so different because he looks at those who are poor now he looks at those who are hungry now, at those who are weeping now, at those who are shamed and disrespected by others now, and says, you know what? You have it good. And he looks at those who are rich, at those who are full, at those who are laughing, and those who are respected, and says, whoa, you have it bad. And that's so different, right? Here Jesus is dividing these two groups of people, the rich and the poor, and he's saying almost the opposite thing about them that our cultures have trained us to. That would be almost like offensive to say sometimes. Because again, think about this. It's like we're looking at these two groups of people standing in front of us, people crying and really suffering, and people enjoying life and being honored, and Jesus is saying, Envy the poor and feel badly for the rich, almost. Obviously, he's not saying that because envy is a sin, but you get the idea. This is radical. It's a different way of looking at the world. And we have to understand why Jesus says that. That could be point number two. We've looked at Jesus' value system, what he says, but now why? Why does Jesus say that? What does Jesus mean? And we could start with what this is not. This is not Jesus talking about how you get saved. 
This is not Jesus saying, you're saved if you're poor, and you can't get saved if you're rich. And there are so many ways to prove that. But the main one being, that's not how salvation works. How salvation works is not what you do for God. It's about what God is doing through Jesus. And this is, of course, the part we love to preach. This is what makes the good news the good news. Because we come to a gospel like Luke, and we're in trouble. But Luke says God has a plan. And it's the same plan he revealed in the Old Testament, which is huge. Because it's a plan about the reversal of the curse. It's a plan about God dealing with the problems in this world and establishing his kingdom where he rules over his people through the man he's chosen. And that man is Jesus. That's basically what Luke is shouting in every which way. He's trying to help us see that Jesus is God's son, the promised one, that Jesus is the one God has sent into the world to deal with the problem of sin and to deal with the problem of death. And we can't do that. We can't save ourselves. But Luke wants you to know that Jesus is the one who's going to accomplish salvation which is something I say almost every week, right? To the point where maybe we get used to it and think, do I really need to say this anymore? Because everyone knows this, that only Jesus saves. But everyone does not know this. And it might seem obvious to us, but it's not obvious. In fact, it's a completely different way than everyone else in the world thinks about how salvation works. So if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're like, what's going on with these people? What are they about? You'll find at first, obviously, that there are some things we have in common with other religious people. But you keep listening, and you should hear that there are some things that are very different. And one thing that is very different is that Christianity offers a completely different view of salvation. And what is so different about it? What's different about it is that God is the one who does the saving. A preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones, he put it like this. He says, The gospel of Jesus Christ is surprising, and if it does not come to us as a surprise, we've never really known it. So if you're listening to this message and it doesn't surprise you, maybe you're not hearing it. And what is so surprising about it? Here it is. He says, the first thing that is surprising is that it demands nothing of us, nothing whatsoever. The New Testament comes to us and tells us that we're born into the world in a state of sin and that we aggravate it and increase it and bring ourselves to this condition of complete barrenness, spiritual barrenness, spiritual poverty. It tells us that we are penniless and helpless and that we have nothing whatsoever to offer God. That's the bad news. But, and this is the astounding thing, it also tells us that makes no difference at all when it comes to salvation and forgiveness. God demands nothing of us but the recognition of that. He does not demand goodness of us, nor does he demand morality or works. He does not demand of us right ideas and wonderful conceptions of life and understanding. He makes no such demand at all. And the wonderful thing is that our lack of these things and our extreme poverty are no hindrance whatsoever which is the part that's so hard for us to understand because we all tend to think that becoming a Christian and sharing in the Christian salvation is something that's a result of our goodness, our morality, our working, our fasting, our praying, our sweating or something like that. We say, I'm going to make myself a Christian. By my own efforts, I'm going to make myself a good person. But the gospel confronts us with the exact opposite. It says all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. And the glorious thing about this salvation is that Far from telling us that because we're like that, we're hopeless, it tells us that, in a sense, that is the very condition to receiving salvation. 
which is why it would make no sense to think that Jesus is offering a new plan of salvation when he says, blessed are the poor. This is not a way of saving yourself. Be poor and you will be blessed. That's not why Jesus says this. Jesus is not saying being poor is something God really likes. And so if you can just be poor, then God will save you. Or that being rich is something God doesn't really like. And so if you're rich, you are automatically in trouble. And one way we know that is because we're not going to be poor in heaven. And people are not going to be rich in hell. In fact, if you look at the passage, that's kind of key to the whole argument, that there's going to be this great reversal. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. So that's not why Jesus says this. It's not because he thinks poverty is a better condition in and of itself than prosperity. But if that's not what is going on, what is? What is going on is that in Jesus, God is acting to provide salvation, the salvation that the whole world so desperately needs. What's going on is that in Jesus, something is happening. Jesus is accomplishing a salvation that is going to change the future history of the world. Because of what Jesus is doing here in Luke, there is going to be a kingdom of God. There is going to be a defeat of death, and there is going to be forgiveness of sin, and there's going to be peace on earth. What's going on is that in Jesus, God has acted, and, and he stepped into the course of human history to do everything that he's promised, and Luke's proving it. He's proving, he's proving it over and over again. He's showing us that God has made it obvious that this is what is going on. I mean, we open up the book, and we've got angels showing up and making announcements, and we've got heaven being ripped open, and God the Father speaking and identifying Jesus. And we've got Jesus himself preaching on the Old Testament and explaining what he's doing and proving that he's doing it by all these acts of never-seen-before power. So this is not something that was being done in a corner. God said what he was going to do. He sent prophets who explained what he was going to do. And then God did it through Jesus. Jesus is salvation. And yet, not everybody's believing. That's what's going on. Jesus is bringing salvation, but as he does, he's being rejected. And so now, there are these two groups. There are those who are rejecting Jesus and getting angry at Jesus, and there are those who are coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus and submitting to Jesus. There are these two groups, people who are part of the kingdom and people who aren't. This is the story we're reading in Luke. And we're looking at what happened to Jesus and seeing these two groups. And the thing is, who was in these groups, basically? This is the part you have to think about where this passage comes into focus. The group being saved by Jesus and the group rejecting Jesus. Who are the ones, by and large, coming to him and submitting to him and looking to him as savior? And who, as a result, are going to be part of his kingdom? and enjoy the salvation God's accomplishing through him. And who are the ones who are not? Think about the Gospel of Luke, the story. And this is kind of fun to do, to walk your way through Luke and try to find the people he holds up as examples of faith or examples of salvation. And who is it? First, it's Mary, right? A teenage peasant girl. 
And then we've seen lately in chapter 5, it's a leper. So that's someone who was excluded. You saw a leper and you ran. And then a paralytic. And in those days, people thought if you suffered, it was because you sinned. And so you saw a paralytic. And again, that's someone you would have most likely looked down on. And even if you didn't, it's definitely not going to be someone you envied. Your grid, this was not a way uh, to flourish. Be a leper. Be a paralytic. And then Simon Peter, and he's not really an outcast. He's a fisherman, but he's not a respected religious leader either. And you know, what does he say about himself when he realizes who Jesus is? He says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. So that tells you what he thinks about himself, what category he puts himself in. And then after that, there's Levi. And what's he? He's a tax collector. And in those days, a tax collector was looked on as a traitor. You didn't want your children to grow up to be a tax collector, which is why the religious leaders were so upset when Jesus was eating with them. And that's where we've gotten so far in Luke. But we can keep going because that's just a preview. If you go to chapter 7, you know who Jesus says we should learn who to believe from or how to believe from? It's a Roman soldier, which I'm telling you, to a Jewish person back then would have been shocking. And then Jesus acts to rescue a widow, someone who's in such a terrible situation, her whole town is crying when Jesus meets her. And after that, when John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus to make sure that he really is the Messiah, you know how Jesus assures him? He says, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. He's summarizing his ministry. This is who is hearing the gospel. And then there's a sinful woman, and that probably means prostitute, and a Pharisee. And you know who Jesus uses as, as an example of someone whose sins are forgiven and whose actions should be imitated? In that story, it's the sinful woman. After that, you have Jairus, and he's the ruler of the synagogue, so he is different. He's important, and yet he's in trouble because his daughter just died. And then if we fast forward, we got ten lepers who are all healed, but only one is fully made well, made right with God. And who is it? It's the Samaritan, who were people who were completely looked down on. And later, Jesus tells a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector, and they're both praying. But you know who Jesus says is right with God? It's the tax collector. And then we meet a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and is interested in Jesus, but ends up going away, unable to follow Jesus. And you know what Jesus says there? He says, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Are you catching this? I mean, are you, are you seeing the theme? Because we can keep going. Next, there's a blind beggar who's saved. And then Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is rich. He's a tax collector. But he's rich, and he's saved. And Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house. But you know one of the things that prompted Jesus to say that? Zacchaeus was demonstrating his repentance by giving away many of the things he had. That's the positive side. Jesus is bringing salvation. And when Luke shows us the group being saved, those are the people in it. But now if we go back and think about who is rejecting Jesus or, or not believing, the more negative side, who is in that group? The first negative example is Zacchaeus. Unfortunately, he changes, but that's only after he's been disciplined. And it's so striking the way Luke writes this because he contrasts Zechariah with Mary, and Zechariah is the one you would have thought who we can learn from since he's this old, respected priest. And yet you know who his own wife, 
tells us we should be learning from? She says, and I can just imagine Zachariah sitting there, blessed is she who believed. She points not to Zechariah, but to Mary. And in terms of respected, influential people and their response to Jesus, it only gets worse from there. And you can read the stories yourself, but who is missing Jesus? You look at the examples Luke gives, and time and time again, it's these people that Jesus is saying woe about. The rich, the fools, the ones who are full, the ones everyone respected. And you know, if you're confused or thinking maybe we're making too much of that, Jesus tells some stories about who is going to be in the kingdom and who's going to experience salvation. And one of my favorites is in Luke 14, where someone is having a meal with Jesus. And he says, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. To which Jesus responds by talking about this person who throws a big banquet, and the person represents God and the banquet, the kingdom. And in the story, the person throwing the banquet invites all the people you would expect. And yet they all end up giving excuses. And so you know who he ends up having come instead? It's the lame, the crippled, the poor. And so this clearly is like a a major theme. And, And you want to know one big reason why many of the people you would have expected to enjoy salvation didn't? And you can work your way through Luke sometime and look for the stories where Jesus is giving warnings. Because those warnings are key to what people were missing. But you remember maybe some of them. Like the story about the rich fool who is so focused on building barns for himself and hasn't considered his relationship with God. And why does Jesus tell that story? You know why? It's because he had had been talking about how his followers were going to be persecuted. And in the middle of that, as Jesus is talking, someone interrupts and he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus is like, watch out. And then later, another really famous story as well in Luke 16, it's called the rich man and Lazarus. The, The rich man and Lazarus. We get the name of the one and not the other. And Jesus talks about this great reversal there that took place after they died. Lazarus is so poor while he lives on earth. And yet after he dies, he's honored. And the opposite for the rich man. And yet, you know part of why Jesus told that story? Listen to one of the verses that goes before it. Luke 16, 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things. And they ridiculed him. And there's more. But why does Jesus tell these stories? It's because he is bringing salvation. And yet not everyone's experiencing it. And he's identifying one of the biggest threats. And it's just so ironic. Because what you think is the key to flourishing right now, in real life, when Jesus comes into the world, a lot of times was actually the threat. Wealth. The cares of this life, the respect of other people, which should make you think a little about your value system, how you think about life, the good life. You're here. You're a follower of Jesus. But are you following Jesus in the way he thinks about life right now? That's the question. Because Jesus is talking about the way that humans flourish 
blessing and woe in Luke 6. This is important. He's giving a new set of assumptions about how life in this world works. And he looks at the poor and says, blessed. And he looks at the rich and says, woe. Not because he thinks being poor in and of itself is morally better somehow than being rich. And not because he thinks everyone who's poor is going to be saved or even that everyone who's rich isn't but because he's looking at those who are responding to him, these two groups, and drawing implications. And what are those implications exactly? And that's maybe third. One, there's what Jesus says, the value system. And two, why Jesus says it. He's looking at those who are responding to him and those who aren't. Now three, what difference does it make? Jesus wants to change the way you think. And one way he wants to change the way you think to start with is that when you look at life and make judgments about what is good and what is bad, you begin considering all of life, not just one small little part. So much of what drives us, how we feel, what we get upset about, what we make sacrifices for, is just one really small part of life. But we look a little further, and it's going to completely change our perspective. I mean, think with me for a second about the unbeliever who's doing really well right now, but one day is going to be judged by God. Because that means he's, he's going through life like a condemned criminal, really. That's the unbeliever, a condemned criminal. And imagine, to get a picture of what this is like, imagine him as being like maybe a condemned criminal being led to his condemnation. Because that's true too, right? It's just a matter of time before he faces the judgment of God. But picture a condemned criminal, and it's the day that he's going to be judged. And for some reason, as the condemned criminal is being led to his condemnation, they decide to give him this one amazing day before he's sentenced to death. And so he's being led through a number of really nice houses And he's being given every enjoyable experience that he could ever wish for. That day, you might say, it's kind of like he's rich. But really, would you call him blessed? If you know, at the end of the day, he's going to be executed? No, you would say, whoa, like Jesus. But that's the unbeliever. It's like Jesus has been to the future And he's saying the future should change the way we look at life right now. You see someone who values 10 seconds over 10 years. You think that person's not thinking correctly. But too often, we value 70 years over 700 million years, over eternity. Imagine you're sitting down with Lazarus to give a a contrast. I'm talking about Lazarus in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. If you know the story, you know he was a a beggar. He was covered with sores. Even the wild dogs felt sorry for him. His life here on earth was miserable. But imagine sitting down with Lazarus in heaven, in the presence of God. Are you feeling badly for him? No. You're saying blessed. This life is just a moment, a blip. And for the believer and the unbeliever, actually, it's so quick. And yet, as believers, we know there's more to to life than this life. 
After death comes judgment. And so if you're going to evaluate what is really valuable and what is not and what leads to flourishing and what doesn't, you can't just look at now. You have to look at what's coming, the kingdom of God and the judgment of God, because all that is coming, and it's coming quickly. And when it does, it's going to be forever. And your relationship with Jesus is key to either being part of that kingdom or not. Which means your relationship with Jesus is more important than anything else. Is it? Is that how you view flourishing? How you evaluate? How you make decisions? Will this lead me to Jesus or not? Because you know, back to Luke 6, the reason some are blessed here and the reason Jesus is saying woe here is not ultimately because these people were poor or rich. That's not the point in the end. It's because of the way they responded to him. And we know that because there are rich people in the Gospel of Luke who are saved. And we know that for another because right after Jesus says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, he says what is impossible with man is possible with God. And we know that as well because of the the way these blessings and woes work in Luke 6. So if you look at verses 20 through 26, you'll see there are four blessings on the one side and four woes on the other. And the way these blessings and woes work, uh, the first blessed is tied to the first woe. Blessed are the poor, woe to the rich. And the second blessed to the second woe, hungry fool. And the third to the third, weep laughing. And then there's the fourth bless, and this one's right in the middle of the whole list, and it's longer, and this is the bless where I think we find Jesus' emphasis. He says, blessed are you when people hate you, and they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And highlight on account of the Son of Man. Because here are people who are being hated, being excluded, and being reviled for a reason. And that reason is key. It's on account of the Son of Man. And the final woe is similar. In fact, it's like a contrast. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And do you see the difference between the two groups there? The first group, the ones who are blessed, choose Jesus and persecution. They choose Jesus over comfort. Jesus is what matters most. Where the second group choose ease and popularity over Jesus, which I think is key to the whole thing, the fundamental difference between those who have a good and those who don't. It's not their circumstances ultimately. It's their relationship with Jesus. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor, it's your relationship with Jesus that matters. But you have to understand, and this is maybe one of the hardest parts to understand, But if we look at a lot of what God uses to bring people to Jesus in the Bible, in church history, it's often suffering, shame, and humiliation. The things we so desperately want to avoid sometimes are really good for us because it's what God uses to force us to go to Jesus and depend only on Jesus. And the things we so desperately pursue that we make so important, such essentials, are often what makes it difficult for people to value Jesus. 
which should impact the way we look at life, our value system. It should make us think differently. Because rich or poor, we're all going to have to stand before God one day. And what matters most is being part of his kingdom. And being part of that kingdom requires identifying with Jesus. And right now, for the most part, identifying with Jesus is going to result in suffering, humiliation, and shame. Which is why later in Luke, we're going to see Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit if a man gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And he says that because that's how God is working in this world right now, first through Jesus, which is what he's constantly trying to help the disciples understand, that God's salvation plan involves Jesus suffering, dying, and then rising from the dead. And then glory. That's the pattern first for Jesus, but also, here's the key, for those who follow him. If we follow Jesus, if we side with Jesus, there's probably going to be some shame right now and difficulty. And we're going to have to be willing to embrace that. Which means if we are valuing what the world values, ultimately, we are not going to identify with Jesus. If the most important thing is comfort now, pleasure now, respect now, we're not going to be going the same way with our lives as Jesus. Which is why I say, give it up. Re reject it. And of course, I don't mean reject riches altogether or that you can't enjoy prosperity or that you can't take advantage of where God's placed you in the world. But I do mean make sure you think differently about it, that you don't value it the same way the world does. Because what is far more valuable than what you have materially or what you can gain for yourself materially right now is your relationship with Jesus. And if you have that, it's only because God has done a supernatural miracle in your life and humbled you and shown you your desperate need of a Savior in spite of what you have. And so if you want to boast in anything as being really worthwhile and being the way to flourish, let it be the things that God has used to humble you. Because that's what Jesus values. That's what's important. Let's pray. Father, please help us through your spirit to hear Jesus. And to be transformed by him. Not just to be Christians on the outside with the same value system as the world on the inside but people who have been given a whole new way of looking at things and who recognize there's this eternal reversal that's going to take place and who are changed in our day-to-day -day living 
as a result of that. And we pray this in your name. Amen.